Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in our afternoon worship services here at the Grace Canadian Reformed Church, we, it's our practice that we go through uh, the Lord's Days of the Heidelberg Catechism, one of our confessions. And so the focus is quite a bit on, on doctrine, right? On understanding uh, the truths of the Christian faith. And there are many benefits to that. We can grow firm in our faith by yeah, understanding what Scripture is teaching us, and that is very valuable. But it also can come with a risk. The risk is that we get the sense that Christianity is all about knowledge. That if you know your doctrine correctly, then everything is good. But we must understand that's far from what we're doing here. It's great to have an understanding mind, but we don't seek understanding for the sake of merely possessing knowledge. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, If I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. And so, understanding right doctrine is always meant to lead also to right living. Good theology should lead to good application. And this is certainly true when it comes to the matter of the Lord's Supper as well. It's what we are focusing on this afternoon. Again, it's vitally important to understand the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And Lord's Day 30 makes that clear. If we don't have a proper understanding of the Lord's Supper, we can fall into serious error. That's what the first question and answer of Lord's Day 30 is about. But one reason we need to understand the meaning of the Lord's Supper is so that we also partake of it rightly when we do celebrate it. See, there is a right way and a wrong way to celebrate the Lord's Supper, as Scripture makes clear. Our reading from 1 Corinthians 10 is one example that shows us this. When we do understand the meaning of the Lord's Supper, And in light of that, partake rightly of the Lord's Supper. Then it will lead to the building up of our faith and the building up of our relationship with the Lord. So that brings us to the sermon theme. Rightly understanding the Lord's Supper leads to rightly partaking of the Lord's Supper. This understanding, we'll see, leads to partaking with, first of all, humble repentance. Second of all, joyful faith. And finally, proper oversight. So, Lord's Day 30 begins with this question, what is the difference between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? Our confession was written during the time of the Reformation, where this was an important, such an important topic. Uh, this question and answer is all about properly understanding the Lord's Supper. So, what is the message this sacrament gives us? And how is Christ involved in this celebration? Is he bodily present, or is he present in another fashion? And the way we answer these questions has huge implications. Take, for example, the matter of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. Lord's Day 30 states this about the Roman Catholic Mass. The Mass teaches that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, and there is to be worshipped, and so is an accursed idolatry. Now, we might wonder about that statement from our confession. Maybe we know the Roman Catholic 
the official Roman Catholic teaching of the bread and wine changing into the real body and blood of Christ. But can we say they therefore worship these things? Well, maybe your average Roman Catholic does not understand what uh, the Roman Catholic Church teaches on these points, but we must understand that this is not something our confession made up. The Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church has a paragraph titled, Worship of the Eucharist. Worship of the Eucharist. Similarly, Roman Catholic theologian Peter Kreeft had this to say, if the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist were not true, this adoration that we do would be the, mo- be the most momentous idolatry, bowing to bread and worshiping wine. So that's one Roman Catholic's uh, theologian's words. So these words show us that it's so important to get, to get the meaning of the Lord's Supper right, to understand what's going on here. So what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper? Well, a lot could be said about this, of course, but question and answer AD focuses on two things. First of all, describes the one sacrifice of Christ that was offered once for all, and how that's uh, also proclaimed in the Lord's Supper. And it, just, it describes how Christians experience union and fellowship with the Lord Jesus. So first, there is the one sacrifice of Christ offered once for all. In Lord's Day 30, we confess, the Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. See, when Christ died on the cross, he suffered the wrath of God for our sins in our place, and he did this completely on the cross. He was our substitute, standing in our place. He bore our sins in his body on the cross as he was crucified. And by his bitter suffering and death, he satisfied the justice of God against our sins. He did this completely. He went through unspeakable pain, anguish, terror, and agony so that he would free us. He did free us from the anguish and torment of hell. That is Christ, the power of Christ, one sacrifice for sins, once offered on the cross. A similar thing can be said about the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Lord's Day 30 describes it like this. Through the Holy Spirit, we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and this is where he wants to be worshipped. So by the working of the Holy Spirit, we are in Christ, united to him. Christ is in us. We are united to Jesus' true body and blood in heaven. We are part of him, part of his body. And this union with Christ's body and blood is strengthened as we partake in the Lord's Supper by faith. 
This is also why 1 Corinthians 10 will say, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? We have a real living union with our Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And to understand these words, participation in the blood of Christ and participation in the body of Christ, listen to what Paul says just a few verses later. He warns the Corinthian Christians not to walk into idols' temples and eat from the sacrifices that were offered there. Why is that? Well, it's not because idols were real gods. The idols were just statues Uh, maybe of wood or stone. They were nothing. But he says, behind the idols, those idols and those temples, was the work of demons. Satan tempted people. He blinded their eyes and caused them to serve these false gods. So, demons were behind uh, that idolatry. And so, when they participated in idol sacrifices, eating Uh, from the food, they were participating in the work of demons. They could not, it was impossible to celebrate uh, that connection with idols and the demons behind them. Because they might have thought that since idols are not really gods at all, it'd be no big deal to eat other sacrifices. However, the connection between these sacrifices and demons was so close, you couldn't just eat of it and not participate in that work of demons. And it's the same thing with the Lord's Supper. It's true that the bread and wine don't turn into the body and blood of Christ. But that doesn't mean the Lord's Supper is only, merely, a memorial meal. Just as you can't separate the sacrifices and idols, temples, from the work of demons, you can't separate the Lord's Supper from Christ, from the living Christ. Participating in the Lord's Supper is an act deeply connected to the person and work of Christ. As the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10 describes about Israel, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. It's not physical food primarily, but spiritual food. So that's the message of the Lord's Supper. All this has profound impact on how we celebrate this sacrament. Question 81 asks, who may come to the table of the Lord? Well, the answer is those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. And this flows naturally from our understanding of the Lord's Supper. You see, when we understand what's going on in the Lord's Supper, the only appropriate way to partake is with humble repentance. After all, look at what it cost Christ to pay for our sins. Remember, he suffered the wrath of God. He was suffering the curse for us and in our place. 
and the broken bread and the wine poured out, they show a man devastated by sin's punishment. Christ's body was nailed to the cross, his blood poured from his body to take away sins. Again, suffering the curse proclaimed in the Lord's Supper. So how then could we take this sacrament lightly? Look at the price that Christ paid for us. Look at what he went through. So how could we then live in sin and not turn away from it? Christ died to pay for our sins, not so that we could continue on in it. Christ died to remove our sins, not so that we could proudly hold on to them. So the only right response to uh, to participating in the Lord's Supper is humble repentance. And again, look at how closely the living Christ is connected to the Lord's Supper. You can't separate Christ from the Supper. To quote Lord's Day 30, through the Holy Spirit, we are grafted into Christ. We are united to Him by faith. And this is the Christ. This is the very Son of God. The living Lord Jesus lives in us and we in Him. This is close fellowship with the Almighty, eternal Son of God. So how can we enjoy such close fellowship with the Holy Son of God and also live in sin? We remember that He is holy. We understand how much He hates sin. Yes, we don't come to the Lord's Supper because we are perfect. Actually, the opposite is true. We come because we are still sinners in need of Christ. We still come with humility as those who are displeased with ourselves because of our sins, wanting to strengthen our faith, wanting to amend our life. We come as those who know we cannot provoke the Lord to jealousy, as 1 Corinthians 10 says. See, the Lord Jesus wants us. That's also the message of the Lord's Supper. He wants fellowship with us. And He is also jealous over us. He wants fellowship with us, and that requires a response of devotion to Him. We think of 1 Corinthians 10 again, what it says about the example of the Israelites in the wilderness. They were all baptized. It says, men and women and children... They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same, and, but God was not pleased with most of them. Most of them were overthrown in the wilderness. They, they treated the holiness of God with complete contempt. They engaged in idolatry. They indulged in sexual immorality. They put Christ to the test. They grumbled against God, and all without a, a shred of repentance or humility. And so it did not go well with them for these things. And verse 6 teaches us, these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So as we come to the Lord's Supper, let's come with humble hearts. Let's come with repentant hearts, seeking to be strengthened in our faith. That brings us to our next point. 
And so, beloved, Scripture warns us against celebrating the Lord's Supper while holding a cavalier attitude towards sin. That's what 1 Corinthians 10 shows us. But this in no way is meant to turn the Lord's Supper into a somber meal. In fact, it's far from it. The Lord's Supper is rightly called a celebration. And we may and are encouraged to celebrate uh, having the sacrament with joy. And to see this, we need to come again to the proper understanding of the Lord's Supper. Lord's Day 30, again, the Lord's Supper testifies that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. This is a reality for us who believe. This is something that the letter to the Hebrews really hammers home too. Listen to Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. When Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places by his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 9, verse 26, Christ appeared at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 10, verse 10, by the perfect will of Christ, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Hebrews 10, verse 12, Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And that's why Christ proclaimed on the cross, it is finished. There was no more he needed to do to save us from our sins, to redeem us. All was accomplished. All was paid for. All was forgiven. So he proclaimed, it is finished. And so that's why we can also partake in the Lord's Supper with a joyful faith. We are not only displeased with ourselves because of our sins, We also come to the table trusting that our sins are forgiven us and that our redeeming weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. We may celebrate this reality, this beautiful reality that Christ has gained. See, for you who who believe in Jesus Christ, Christ has effectually redeemed you. That means he has bought you to be his own. He's bought you once and for all with his own body and blood. You belong to Jesus Christ, and you may celebrate that. Celebrate it now, today, but every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we belong to Christ. And think also of the fellowship side of the Lord's Supper, to, to quote eight, answer 80 again. Through the Holy Spirit, we are grafted into Christ united to him, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And we celebrate that we are joined to a heavenly Savior who is in heaven right now. We're joined to him. Christ entered heaven with his body upon his ascension, and we enter also into the presence of God through the body and blood of Christ, when we receive it by faith. Again, you who believe, you are joined to Christ, the Son of God. 
And as Colossians 3 says, your life is now hidden with God in Christ, who's seated in the heavenly places. That's where your life is. And so it's a reason to celebrate, come, not only with humble repentance, but with joyful faith. It is a reality for you who believe. And Christ has real fellowship with us in the Lord's Supper. It's This is a memorial meal, but it's more than that. It's a fellowship meal. Christ is present in the supper spiritually. And he has real fellowship with weak, sinful, repentant people like you, like me. And this is something we see time and time again uh, while Christ was on earth during his ministry. How often did he not eat and drink with sinners? Here's a few examples. In Matthew 9, the Lord Jesus called Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him, become one of his disciples. And then Christ then went to his house, eating with many other tax collectors and sinners, people who were despised in Israel. And the Pharisees, people like the Pharisees, they grumbled about this. But Jesus replied, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this is who we are. We come to the Lord's supper table knowing that we aren't perfect. We need Christ. And yet he has fellowship with us as he had fellowship with so many sinners while he was here on earth. In another instance in Luke 15, Jesus received sinners and ate with them. Again, the Pharisees grumbled. And then there is the institution of the Lord's Supper itself. Christ ate and drank with his disciples. We know from Bible, they were far from perfect. They were so often like us, weak in faith, stumbling along. We are like all those people as we celebrate the Lord's Supper Christ, he comes and has fellowship with us, imperfect people. See, there's no real difference between us and those people in Scripture who who ate and drank with Christ. We get to have fellowship with him. And so again, another reason to rejoice. Christ has had mercy on us, and he wants to be with us. He wants to celebrate with us. That brings us to our last point. So, Lord's Day 30 ends with this question and answer. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession in life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? And here we confess the answer is no, for then the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, The Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. You see, these are, these things, they're not little matters. God is holy. Christ is holy. Salvation is a wonderful thing, but it's also a weighty matter. And so, rightly understanding the Lord's Supper also calls for proper oversight by the elders of the church. You know, one of the dangers 
affecting the church today is a deep-seated individualism. You know, this is one way where our culture can affect us so strongly. We live in a culture where a self is king. I make my own life choices. No one can tell me what to do, or so the thinking, so the thinking goes. We have to confess that this spirit often invades the church as well. And we can so often think that we don't need to worry about what other Christians are doing. I just need to worry about my own relationship to Christ, and that's it. But that thinking is far removed from the message of the Lord's Supper. What is one thing it proclaims? We are members of one body, one body together. And what one member does will affect the rest of the body, just like one part of your body will affect the rest of your body. And so we can't think that blatant and open sin of one member will only affect that member. If people who show by their confession in life to be unbelieving and ungodly participate in the Lord's Supper, it will affect the entire body. And that's why the Christian church must exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And we also must understand the keys of the kingdom are given to the church, not to the individual. The elders of the church exercise those keys. And so part of exercising those keys is having proper oversight of the Lord's supper table. Now, let's be clear on one thing. This does not mean we are judging every guest who walks in off the street when they are not admitted to the Lord's Supper. Rather, it's simply the elders' duty to ensure that blatant unbelievers and hypocrites are not admitted. See, what message would be sent if people blatantly sitting in the open were welcome to celebrate the sacrament? Well, it would send the message that Christ approves of those things. It would send the message that Christ died for us so that we could live in sin and embrace it. And doing that provokes God's anger. If we did that, we would share in the person's sins. Think again of Israel in the wilderness, hinted that in 1 Corinthians 10. At one point, Israel wanted to make gods for themselves because Moses was taking so long on Mount Sinai. And what should Aaron and the other leaders of Israel have done? Well, they should have resisted that firmly without any compromise whatsoever. You can't do this. Instead, what did Aaron do? He facilitated their sin by making the golden calf for them. The complete opposite of what he should have done. So the Lord was angry with his people and also for Aaron what he did. And so where there's open sin and unbelief, the elders of the church cannot admit uh, them to the Lord's Supper. Instead, the elders must exercise Christian discipline to call such people to repentance. So that's the negative side, but there is also the positive side as well. When proper oversight is done, it helps to strengthen our faith. 
See, the elders of the church hold the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Christ has given it to the church. And they are admitting you to the table of the Lord as servants of Christ. And so, through their authority that Christ himself has given them, it's as if Christ Jesus himself were welcoming you to the table of the Lord to celebrate this sacrament, to rejoice in the complete forgiveness of your sins purchased by the blood of Christ. So, through that, we are assured more and more Through the body and blood of Christ, I too am a child of God. Amen. Let us respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing a hymn, 82, the stanzas 1 and 3. You can find that on page 483 of the Book of Praise.